This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. All public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. When Suzuki Roshi came to New to uh, San Francisco, he kept things um, quite simple. Like in in the morning chanting service, they just chanted the Heart Sutra three times and nothing else. And even when he established Tassahara, um, he didn't bring in all the um, all the liturgy from the training monastery at Heiji. Maybe he didn't know it all. He only spent a year and a half there. But I suspect that, I mean, he became a monk when he was 15. So by the time he got to San Francisco, he'd been at it quite a while, uh, over four decades. Um, and then he invited another teacher Tatsugami uh, Roshi. And then when Tatsugami came, he brought all the formalities of Eiji, where he had been the Eno for a decade. And, uh, and introduced them without Suzuki Roshi knowing. It was kind of like a surprise to him. And I was just thinking, oh, Again, this is the way the world, you know. (laughs) I think part of, so as you may have noticed, um, I I didn't introduce these kinds of chants. And my thinking was, it's about accessibility and, and then also, in a more subtle way, it, it was a, about expressing the non-dual foundation of um, Zen practice. Uh, Dogen Zenji, in, in a fascicle that he wrote, the founder in China, of this, of, in Japan of this style, in, uh, in a fascicle called Bendowa, a wholehearted engagement in the way. He starts off by saying, before chanting, before incense offering, before bowing, um, zazen. No. And uh, for good measure, he says, and this is what has communicated, this is what has transmitted the core of the teaching through all the generations. Um, So being simple-minded, I've always taken it as literal. Before, uh, let's... um, Let's have some foundation in the core of the practice. 
and then we can take on uh, we can add in what illustrates that, what expresses that. Uh, yesterday I was talking to uh, a poet and we were talking about the relationship between uh, poetry and spirituality. And he was telling me that his inclinations were towards what he called the religious narrative. Like saying, all religions as the vehicles of spirituality, to put it uh, maybe unkindly or simply, they have their stories. And then Jesus' mother said to him, Son, we've run out of wine. Would you do one of your wee miracles and make some more? <laughs> I don't know, what can you say when your mom asks you to do something? <laughs> I'm quite sure he was thinking, you know, this is not what miracles are for, you know. <laughs> we should just go down to the store and buy some, you know. <laughs> this is going to ruin my reputation. But his mom just looked at him and he said, Okay, Mom. Um, and then you have your, your something like Zen, the, the finder of Zen, Bodhidharma. Um, there's controversy over whether he did or didn't exist. <laughs> it's really not getting off to a good start in terms of your tradition. <laughs> but despite that, we have all sorts of wonderful stories about Bodhidharma. Uh, cutting off his eyelashes. And they fell to the ground and became tea plants. If you're going to have a story, if you're going to have a religious narrative, you might as well have a good one. Tea plants or teapots? What's it? Tea plants or teapots? Plants. Tea plants, okay. Yeah, and that's, that's where tea came from. You didn't know that? Alright. Um. And so Padraig, the, the, the guy I was talking to, was talking about religious narrative in a much more respectful and insightful way than I just have. <laughs> and then maybe trying to act clever or like feeling like I knew something about something in the moment, I said, in the Zen school, we try to wake up and be present for what's happening. And then each moment tells the story. You know? 
and then from a certain kind of disposition the chanting, the bowing, the incense offering, all the stuff we get up to uh, we can see in it how it expresses something about existence. You know? Like we we bow to Buddha without, within everything, and we bow the, to the Buddha within this one. Um, and they're not different. Um, we chant. And and unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kappas. I vow to hear it. Hmm. Is that it? Can we uh, is awakening the the product of our intentionality. Mm-hmm. Or to just turn it into a simpler question, what 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 role does intentionality play within it? Someone told me an interesting story today, talking about religious narratives. Uh, They said, well, someone asked me for, uh, you know, the lead, the cord that charges an iPhone, you know. He asked to borrow mine. And he said, "Uh, I knew I had one in my car, but I said to him, oh, I'll see if I have one in my car. And he said, really, I was um, hesitant about lending it to him, you know? So I was kind of disguising the fact of my hesitancy uh, by, by saying, by pretending I didn't know if I had one. He said, my first impulse in response to his question, can I borrow the lead, was like, no you can't, get your own bloody lead. (laughs) But you know, in civilized society you can't say that sort of thing. Uh, My grandson, who's two and a half, can. A couple of weeks ago, uh, he came to visit me. He lives upstairs and I live downstairs. It's not a long journey. And, and he said, I love you. And I thought, 
Fahrenheit, thank you, I love you too. And he says, I love you. And then we went on like this for quite a while. And then he was hanging out, and then he wanted something. I forget what it was. And I said, oh, you can't have that. And he said, I hate you. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, he's in touch with his feelings. <laughs> but you know, when you're a grown person, it's hard to say. You know, go get your own bloody lead. Uh, and then he noticed the feeling thought. And then, and as it, and give himself the space of going to the car to pretend to see if he had one. And then, surprisingly, he found it and he lent it to him, the other guy. Uh, that interesting play of our initial impulse, you know, like something, and, and, and if you look at, at how, like, people like Paul Ekman, who uh, lives over in the Bay Area in California, talking about the first flicker of emotion comes in a fraction of a second. Boom, you know. You're being yourself not only before you like it or don't like it, but before you even thought of it, you know, it pops out, you know. And then, and, and then the intention to practice with the human condition. What do you do with it, you know? Do you stop right there? And just blurt it out? No, I hate you. I'm not lending it to you. Or do you, uh, let's, can your, can your intention meet that um, visceral impulse? It's a very interesting question. And then what, what structures and influences the intention? You know? Do you read up on the do's and don'ts of how to get life right. You know? Or do you uh, practice awareness, mindfulness, zazen, so that you start to have some experience of meeting the moment and letting the moment reveal uh, the nature of existence. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a, a quiz on this in a moment or so, so... <laughs> <laughs>
Still coming, there's more to come. More to come. I'm just building up the tension. <laughs> so, This is something, I must say personally, this is something that has intrigued me for years. Uh, and my notion is that in Zen, the connecting to Zazen, just as Dogen says, helps move us in the direction of directly experiencing. As this person was telling me this story today, I got the impression that they thought they were a bit of a jerk for having that initial impulse. You know? Like, yeah, there was, there I was kind of uh, holding back something that wasn't a big deal to offer. And there I was, kind of faking it, pretending, oh, oh, I'm not sure if I have one of those. Oh. Uh, and yet when I heard this story, I thought, pretty good. You know, pretty good. Didn't just get stuck there. And whatever, whatever that initial impulse of fear, you know, you want something, and then the other side of that is I'll lose something. You'll get it, and I'll lose it. Um, If I give you something, then um, I have to depend on you to give it back. Uh, I prefer the self-sufficiency. Or whatever the heck it was that created that initial spontaneous hesitancy. To not stop there. Hmm. Okay. And what else? Can I? Uh, can I not be trapped inside whatever that hesitancy, whatever that holding back, whatever that separateness is predicting? as the way the world is. Uh, and then, be willing to go beyond it and discover something more about being alive, something more about interacting, something more about the risk of 
scarcity and the risk of giving and receiving. So that's how I heard this story. And I would say that, that both that kind of intentionality in the everydayness of our life, if, if we start to pay attention, it's amazing what you can notice you're getting up to, you know? All sorts of things, you know? And the interesting thing is, as you pay attention with that kind of detail, at first, it's almost embarrassing, you know. <laughs> really, is that me? That couldn't be me. I'm a much nicer person than that. <laughs> I'm much wiser and generous and, <laughs> and compassionate. And then, as you continue to see that, and not to say, I think one of the other surprises is that in fact, sometimes we are indeed wise and generous and compassionate. But that's in there too, you know. Um, but I'd say it's both. And as we pay attention, um, And we observe this, that it's less of a surprise, and then it becomes more intriguingly informative. I remember once when I was at our monastery, uh, Tassahara, in, in it was coming into dusk, you know, as it does every day. And, and I noticed I was a little, I was, the very fact, the very experience of dusk was making me a little bit sad and a little bit frightened. You know, not, not in any big, you know, dramatic way, but just that moment of another day over, another day gone, you know. And how well, so-called little things influence us. And almost the paradox that they influence us and they teach us how to live. But to be able to tune in in that way, we need to come to terms with the kind of unruly impulses of our consciousness. You know? The ways we can get distract, the ways we can obsess, you know, the, 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 that we have to engage in a way 
that discovers how to cultivate attention in the midst of those impulses. And, and I would say this is, you know, and, and, and talking what I was talking about a few moments ago, and uh, Nan Juan was talking to Joshu, you know, and, and Joshu's teacher said to him, ordinary mind is the way. You just watch the stuff your mind gets up to, and it teaches you. And that's all supported by the practice of awareness. That such is the nature of our habitual mind that without some deliberate involvement in how it unfolds, um, we're quite likely to be too distracted to see this uh, more subtle workings and to learn from it. We're, we're, going to, we're going to manufacture a different version of reality. That the narrative that comes out of that is about us and them. And of course, they're the bloody fools for getting everything wrong and making life difficult for us. You know? Asking us to borrow our, our, our lead for our iPhone. I mean, I mean, what did he do with his own, right? He lost it. So, and now he wants mine. I would say the religious narrative and the practice of awareness, um, they, they come together. You know? in, in the Zen world we say the two hands of Gasho, the two aspects of it. So here's the question for you right now. Here's the exam. Um, in hearing this notion, um, where, where in your own workings, in the workings of your own being, where does it find relevance? Maybe you could even say, well, what, what did I get up to today or in the last couple of days? Was there some notable interaction? But upon investigation showed something about who I am and how I am. What's your response?
You know, you could have stopped right there and that would have been pretty classy in the Zen world. <laughs> That's all I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's funny, the, the subject of this, a few months ago, I think it was just before Jean arrived, I remember it was just after Jean arrived here, and I don't know if I said this to anybody here, but I've said it to somebody I know, but a phrase popped into my head, I was making food, over Christmas for my brother's girlfriend whose mother was dying and I started making all this vegan food and they're both vegan and it's hard to get food. And it started off as not a nice thing to do and I was making scones and uh, they had that sort of I'll give them all away and and then I noticed all the why all the whys I shouldn't give them all away. And a voice, or, you know, a phrase came into my head, follow your generous impulses. And it was a kind of very, it's kind of the opposite. You know, my first impulse was to be generous, but so quickly came in, I've given them all away, I won't have very many. Or if I do that, what about me? And, uh, and I started sort of practicing with that a lot and noticing that a huge amount, and you, you said the word scarcity, it really, it's kind of like, you know, trying to control everything and hold a bit and it's so small. And I sometimes when you have nothing to lose, you know, you you just do try, you just practice things. Or you, and I thought, yeah, feck it, why don't I try this? And uh, sometimes easier than others, and sometimes I thought, are you being a martyr? Or, you know, are you saying, look at me? And, but it, was, it wasn't really that, it was an interesting, and it still is interesting, just to see how quickly the voices that say, what if we do that? What if we do that? And what if they, you know, what if they borrow it and break it? Look, remember you lent your lawnmower and you came back a year later broken? Don't be doing that again. And I thought, no, well, it, it gets you all sort of tied into what you have to think about. And there was something very liberating about just thinking, I'm just going to do what I think. I'm just going to do what feels nice in the, you know, my first input. And I was, I was quite, Taken, I still am very taken with the finding that actually at the core I felt like mostly I was, my impulse was to be generous and that other stuff wasn't really who I am, that other stuff was all just learned, more learned and more kind of fearful, fear mm. and sometimes the fear is very, you know, it takes a while to see what, it's not always as obvious as giving people scorn, you know, it's like sticking to your familiar way of doing everything because what happens if you try something different and it doesn't go over well? And, and there's a sort of a sense of, well, is it going? Is it going over well? <laughs> exactly. You know, but there's some. There is a huge that song, that Chris Christopherson song. You know, me and Bobby McGee. That line really hit me. Freedom's another word for nothing left to lose. There was a great freedom in just thinking. It's not like it's all going so well. Why not try something a bit different? And mm -hmm. Touch food as we say in Zen. Touch food. But it, it actually there seems to be something has shifted. It seems to work better. Mm -hmm. It seems to work better, and I seem to be getting more back. I keep checking and that I'm not doing it. It never feels like I'm doing it to get something back, really. You know, when I see that yeah. coming up, that's just more of the same yeah. crap. But uh, so that has been the, my experience of that. It's been mm. challenging, but kind of nice.
Thanks. Thank you. What do you say, Paul? Uh, one thing that I struggle with a lot is uh, I'm a big procrastinator, you know, in life. And uh, I've been trying to look into it a bit more when it arises. Something that happened this week was I had family over, you know, a big pile of dishes were left. And, you know, um, they all left and left the dishes for me to clean up. And uh, my initial reaction was, oh, you know, they never help out with the dishes or um, you know, why do I have to do all the dishes? And uh, I didn't want to do the dishes either, so I turned, I, I turned it into a sort of curiosity of, you know, why, why, you know, why am I feeling this way? Or even like uh, looking at it, what, what is doing the dishes? Or uh, I do the dishes every day, but it's just a normal mundane task that I try to get out of the way without putting any sort of investigation into it or. Um, effort I guess it's just something I want to get out of the way as soon as possible and uh, I think there's there was I think a hand quote that we had on the on the sink there about how you can look into things and sort of find joy in them in that way and I've been trying to work with that lately in all aspects of my life you know when that feeling of I want to do this or this sort of story pops up sort of turning inwards and Think putting a curiosity towards it, you know, so well, why is this, or you know, why do I feel this way, or uh, I sort of went deeper into it, and I, I find when I do that, it's sort of... What answer did you get to your own question? The, the question of... Why? Why? Yeah. I'm not sure, I don't think I ever really got an answer to it, but it, I suppose the curiosity... Listen, listen to this, here's, here's, here's what I, I heard a, a teacher say, he says, the great thing about why is it's impossible to answer. Yeah. So that's the great thing about it. Yeah. No? But what we can do is we can notice. Look, yeah. How do I feel when I look at that pile of dirty dishes? You know? Yeah. When, you were, when you were about to quote that Thich Nhat Hanh thing, I had this impulse to argue that what it really says is like, throw all the dirty dishes out the window. <laughs> and what I was getting at was, um, in our curiosity to not to be quick, that oh, and of course, the right thing and the proper thing to do, the, the good Zen, the good person, or whatever the heck, follows being good. Uh, is this? Um, who says? You know. Maybe the dirty dishes uh, speak to you about 
the impossibility of life. Maybe if you do all those things you're procrastinating about, um, there'll be an even bigger pile of dishes behind it. And, uh, and if you admit all that to yourself, uh, you'll be scundered. Do you know that word? Or maybe something else entirely. Until then, you know, like sometimes we say, like a fool, like an idiot, you know? Everybody knows a big pile of dirty dishes is a nuisance. But really, what's it all to you? you know? And then maybe you have to start washing them to discover how does all that check out, you know? Are they going to crucify me? Or are they not as such a big a deal as my mind and emotions create? Next time, use paper plates. <laughs> or lock the door and tell your family nobody's leaving until the dishes are done. The other tip I would give you is that invite Zen people over for dishes. Because the strange thing about Zen and maybe this is the only damn thing you learn from it is how to clean up. And like when you have Zen people over, they usually, in my experiences, they, they, they pretty much always help with the dishes before they leave. charger as well. Um, I mean, I was there in, uh, in the situation when it was being told and what didn't, I, I didn't, I was interested in how the person presented it and they're like pulling back and they're noticing they're pulling back and they're all, but what really struck me about it was in telling this story to a scene, to a Zen master that they were kind of apologetic. They were sort of beating themselves up a little bit with a little bit of, I'm, I'm not very Zen, you know, I'm a bad person. And that was, that was interesting to me because that's, you know, my, my experience in, in my life is like I have feelings come up, things, and I think, ooh, come on, you're a Zen priest, you know? Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to feel things like this or you're certainly not supposed to mm. act out in these ways. And it's something about, so, you know, and I'm also thinking about Tatsugami Roshi and, 
am I the Tatsugami Roshi of Black Mountain and I'll be sent well, apparently Graham beat you to it. off into the wilderness until take your form somewhere else. We don't need your chance. But before um, you go, would you just do those dishes? But I do the dishes <laughs> <laughs> without, without complaining. <laughs> but, but what strikes me is there's a reason for forms. There's a reason for rules of behavior. There's a reason for precepts. There's a reason that we're not to and going, I love you when you give me nice things, and I hate you when you don't give me what I want. There's a reason we're not doing that. It's um, We're trained to have rules of engagement, rules of conduct, uh, a whole system of etiquette. And you know, in AA, we say, fake it till you make it. Like, we come in and we're mad as a brush, and we've no idea what appropriate behavior is, and we keep getting told that we're doing the wrong thing, we don't know. So we get told, look, there's a set of rules for human beings, and one of them is you don't just tell people you hate them, or say, fuck off and get your own charger. You, you know, you have a, a, a certain kind of, well, maybe, maybe I'll check in my car. <laughs> you know, you get that kind of skill set of, um, and in, for me in my practice, the forms have really supported, you know, the, the fact that there's a whole set of, there's a whole etiquette of movement and bows and forms has helped me feel contained, helped my soft heart feel supported mm-hmm. the instructions so maybe that's it's like the instructions about what right behavior is um, there, there is but here's, here's what I would say Jean like to use Padraig's term the religious narrative or are the ways of getting into our own workings that reveals something about human nature. Um, it, and that's why I was kidding to Paul, you know, throw the dishes out the window. You know, it's like, if we say, well, I already know good and bad, I already know what should happen, mm-hmm. um, then it's a setup, you know? It, it's, it's like, not to say that the notion I have of what's virtuous is just completely wrong, but how I relate to it, you know, I would I would say it, it needs that spark of insight that comes from attending to it and learning from it. You know, Suzuki Roshi always said, also said, sometimes. Uh, we follow the precepts by breaking the precepts. Hmm. Did he say follow? I thought he said we study them. No, he yeah. said, well, he, he said actually the translation that we have is we keep the precepts mm-hmm. by breaking the precepts. Yeah. So um, to me that's accommodating the, the peculiarities of who we are. I would say we keep exploring and, and we have those awkward moments of outrageous selfishness. 
but we also have outrageous moments of generosity you know like something moves you and before you know it you're you're, you're offering the hand or you see the homeless person and it sort of breaks your heart, you know, in that moment. That, that that's what's happening in our world, you know. And I think that, that that's what allows us to be skillful with the rules, you know. And when do we become more formal? I don't think there's any kind of easy answer for that. When Tatsugami did it, Suzuki Roshi didn't say, stop doing it. You know? Sometimes in, uh, I've noticed in, uh, you know, uh, traditions within art, within painting and so on, certain conventions, um, academic training, you know, the, the old academic training, Mm -hmm. Painting and so on, learning anatomy and so on first, and then proportions, over color, and you know the various aspects of the body all the way up to the skin and so forth. And you can end up making super realist paintings that everybody goes and eyes about. It. But after a while, after a while, uh, you think, am I going to keep doing this for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. It's like you've reached a certain plateau, <coughs> you know, all the forms, how to engage with, how to get the, you know, the most perfect illusionistic appearance of actuality. Mm -hmm. But then at a certain point you realize the formalism is actually constraining you. Mm -hmm. You're doing something from the outside in, but not from the inside out. And, um, <coughs> Often, if you look at the drawing of the painting of a very young child, mm -hmm. there's more uh, purity and very, very direct inner engagement from just how they're doing it. Because they're not analyzing and getting the external formalization, you know, a little bit this way, a little bit that way, whatever that's a bit wrong, it should be a bit too right. None of that, they're just doing it direct. And the purity in this, and uh, sometimes <coughs> you realize in art that, have, that there's a need to get beyond uh, worshiping the formalism of the forms. Yeah. Otherwise, one doesn't make a breakthrough into the inner aspects mm -hmm. of the creativity. Mm -hmm. So it's about this kind of balancing act. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not discarding the forms, but it's, exactly. but it's uh, trying to work from the inside out, as not just from the outside in. Exactly. Working from the inside out as much from the outside in. Like, I, I would say, in confirmation of what you said, Jean, I think in the Zen tradition, you know, we do adhere to the prohibitions, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie. And that's what creates the safety that allows us to do this kind of more inquisitive, 
reckless exploration. Because if, if you bring the inquisitive recklessness to your, 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 your most outrageous and compulsive habits, um, harm can happen you know, to yourself and to others. So I, I certainly think there, there's, there's, there is that. You know, they, like what, what I'm trying to talk about is after you've, you, you, you know, having a thought of like, I'm not sure I want to give you this, it's very different from, you know, I mean, if that's the worst thing this person ever does in their life, <laughs> and indeed, the tenderness in that moment, putting it out there as an illustration of how they were kind of failing in their own practice. Already they were attuned and working at a pretty high standard. Okay, enough said. Or do we do the closing chant too? Or just the opening? I'm not saying anything. <laughs> if you want to do a closing chant. Oh, well, Are we you, Well, I was just trying to follow the forms. We, we have been As doing, they currently are. We have been doing the closing chants, but... Okay, let's do it. May our intentions equally extend to every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Should Surpassable, I vow to become it. <laughs> <laughs>